you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Welcome back, everybody, to the Maniculum Podcast. For those who are new to the show, I'm Zoe. I'm Mac. And we are both medievalists and game designers. And we break down weird medieval texts, contextualize them for you all, and then teach you how to use the weird, funky elements we find in game design, whether it's TTRPGs, video games, or your next novel. We teach you how to use medieval storytelling for your stories and puzzles and games. And this week, we are jumping back into the Gesto Romanorum, which we haven't touched for a little while. No, no, it's been off to the side for a while while we did Perlis Vows. Yes, but having concluded Perlis Vows in all of its strange, decapitated glory, we are jumping back a little bit into the Gesta Romanorum. But before we get into the Gesta, just a reminder that we do have all of our wonderful social media where you guys can connect with us. We've got our Instagram, Facebook, Discord, if you want to get in on our group where we just throw ideas back and forth, share sources, share articles that we found that were super interesting to us, talk about the episodes that come out. You guys can chat with us, the creators. Please feel free to join. Just drop us a DM. We also have our Twitter and we have our Patreon. So if you like the podcast, then you can support it and support us. We do this all because we love it, and so it always helps us to be supported to get better gear and improve the quality of what we do, and also to get better access to the texts that we look at, because a lot of them are hidden behind academic paywalls, or you know, you want to get a good edition of something, uh, and that can be difficult to find sometimes. So yes, and I think that's about it for today. We can just jump right in. Oh, I do have one small announcement. So at the time of recording this, I'm sure it'll be uh, there'll be much more news by the time this airs. But a new video game has been announced that I am very excited for. It is called Pentment. It is produced by Obsidian Entertainment. And it is a story about a medieval artist in a small town in Germany, and he solves a murder mystery. It's very narrative heavy. It's set in that period, and it's very fun. And it's something that I'm especially excited for because I'm the narrative designer on this piece, uh, <laughs> which has been sort of one of my dreams come true because it combines medievalism with video games, and it's just the coolest project ever. I'm really excited for it when it comes out. Uh, and just a little bit of a disclaimer here, anything that I say on the podcast is purely my own views. None of that represents anything uh, about Obsidian Entertainment or uh, refers to Obsidian's opinions, etc. in any sort of way. Just need to say that, get that out there. But yeah, I'm super excited for this game. I hope you all enjoy it if you do play it. But anyway... Check it out. It's pretty cool. At least I think so. But yes, anyway, back to our regularly scheduled program. Yes. And the guest of Romanorum. So for those of you who haven't listened to our previous episodes on this text, or just don't remember because it's been a while, the guest of Romanorum is a collection of stories from various places over Europe 
some of which are clearly originally folk tales, some of which are allegories, all of which have been assigned a a meaning through biblical exegesis by the compiler. And it's like really thick exegesis too. He tries really hard. You might have a yes. really obvious analogy, you know, like the church is the bride of Christ. And instead he'll go off on this tangent, like the church represents the dove, which appeared over Christ's head and anointed him just so the church can anoint us. And it's like, Bro, we already had a metaphor that made sense. Stop it. Stop it. So he really reaches for these metaphors. Yes. Because again, a lot of the stories in here are clearly not originally supposed to be metaphors. They're just stories. They're folk tales. Yeah. But anyway, let's get let's get into it. So this is one that I don't think was originally a folk tale. I think this is designed to be a metaphor, and you'll see why in addition to the fact that it's very short. Oh, okay. This is Tale 46 of Mortal Sins. Of Mortal Sins. They always have the most dramatic titles. Julius relates that in the month of May, a certain man entered a grove, in which stood seven beautiful trees in leaf. The leaves so much attracted him that he collected more than he had strength to carry. Of leaves, you know, as you do. You see pretty leaves and you just gather, like, so many that you can't physically carry them. I think that has more to do with like, you filled the bag too much rather than weight. But, so I'm, I'm rather impressed that he's managed this. Indeed. On this, three men came to his assistance, who led away both the man and the load beneath which he labored. As he went out, he fell into a deep pit, and the extreme weight upon his shoulders sank him to the very bottom. Why are there pits in this random forest? This grove? If it's a, Okay, if it's a grove, then that means that it is taken care of. Could be. Why? Okay. I'm also concerned that the leaves sink. That's, that is also a good point. Hmm. The same author also relates in his history of animals. So we're done with that story now. Oh, that's it? There's just... Yeah, he fell in a pit. So don't go collecting leaves is the moral here? Yes. But the tale continues to say the same author also relates in his history of animals that if after a crow had built her nest... You wish to hinder her from hatching her eggs, place between the bark and the tree a quantity of pounded glass, and as long as it remained in that situation, she would never bring off her young. And that's the end. That just seems cruel. Yeah, it's not made clear why you would want to hinder a crow from hatching their eggs. Well, crows would eat seeds and crops and grain. Oh. You know, scarecrows, that's what they're for. I just T-posed for everyone who can't wa watch this. So I, I understand not wanting a crow to be around. I didn't realize glass was the solution to that, but I, I want to know what it has to do with the seven trees. Is this like a seven deadly sins metaphor and a crow is a devil? See, this is another reason why I think it's, was, this is originally an allegory, because you're actually correct. Oh yeah, baby! That classical education coming back. This is why you should go to Sunday school, everybody. <laughs> Oof. Cringe. So I'll, I'll actually read the, the application this time, where it explains the metaphor. Usually it's not really worth going over, but I'll read it in full. My beloved, the grove is the world, wherein are many trees, pleasant indeed to the eye, but putting forth only mortal sins. With these, man loads himself. The three men who brought assistance are the devil, the world, and the flesh. The pit is hell. 
They can make allegory out of anything. It's quite impressive. And it goes on to explain the crow thing. Okay. The crow is the devil. The nest is the heart, which he too frequently inhabits. The pounded glass is the remembrance of our latter end. The tree is the soul, and the bark is the human body. Okay, I understand the seven trees. Like, that's that's not too far. But they just decided that the, the tree is what? The tree the crow lives in is the soul. The soul. They're just making this up. Yes. All right. Okay. Yeah, the one, the one with the leaves makes sense as an allegory, although not as a story. The allegorical application to the crow is less clear. It's not great. Okay, the next one I have marked is Tale 53, entitled, Of Good Rulers Who Are Not To Be Changed. Okay. Valerius Maximus states that when all the Syracusans desired the death of Dionysius, king of Sicily, a single woman of great age every morning entreated the gods to continue his life beyond hers. Dionysius, surprised at this solitary exception, inquired the reason. She answered, When I was a girl, and governed by a tyrant, I wished for his removal, and presently we obtained a worse instead. Having got rid of him, a worse still succeeded. Oh no. And therefore, under the justifiable apprehension that your place may be filled up by yet a worse, I pray earnestly for your longer continuance. Dionysius, hearing this, gave her no further trouble. He didn't kill her? Apparently not. I guess that would doom him to death as well. Yeah, he's pr she's praying for his long life. Maybe he needs her around. Better to take an insult than an axe. Is that from something? No, I just made it up. <laughs> I like it. It's pretty good. Thanks. This also has a very, very short application, which I think is very indicative of the mentality of the people who composed this. Oh, no. You'll be happy to know that nothing represents anything here. It is just exactly what you'd expect. My beloved, be not desirous of change. God is merciful and gracious. Be content with his government. That has a lot of really bad implications, given that all of the rulers in this story are tyrants. What does that say about yes. the nature of God? That's a really rough allegory, my dude. Yeah, it's pretty much just saying, like, no matter how bad you think your king is, shut up and be content with it. Wow. That wasn't the intention of render unto Caesar. Don't disrupt the status quo. <sighs> okay, Be not boomer. desirous of change. <laughs> be not desirous of change. Oof. Okay, so this is a, a longer one, finally, since we've just burned through two in like ten minutes. Yes. Tale 56 of Remembering Death. A certain prince derived great pleasure from the chase. It happened, on one occasion, that a merchant accidentally pursued the same path, and observing the beauty, affability, and splendor of the prince, he said in his heart, O oh, ye heavenly powers, that man has received too many favors. He is handsome, bold, and graceful, and even his very retinue are equipped with splendor and comfort. This man too fine. It's just too pretty. So is, are we cursing this man? Are we... I think he's just... Commenting. Questioning. Yeah. Like, hey, why does this guy get all this stuff? <laughs> he's pretty. He's good at sports. It's not fair. He sits at the popular table. <laughs> <laughs> Under the impression of such feelings, he addressed himself to one of the attendants. My friend, said he, tell me who your master is. He is, replied the other, the despotic lord of an extensive territory. His treasury is filled with silver and gold, 
and his slaves are exceedingly numerous. We're just going to come right out and say that he's a despot then? Yep. All right. God has been bountiful to him, said the merchant. He is more beautiful than anyone I ever beheld, and he is as wise as any I have met with. I don't know how he knows that, considering he has not spoken with this man. Also, I wouldn't really consider despots to be wise. True. Now, the person with whom he conversed related to his master all that the merchant had said, and as the prince turned homeward about the hour of vespers, he besought the merchant to tarry there all night. The entreaty of a potentate is a command, and the merchant, therefore, though with some reluctance, returned to the city. When he had entered the palace, the prodigious display of wealth, the number of beautiful halls, ornamented in every part with gold, surprised and delighted him. But supper time approached, and the merchant, by express command of the prince, was seated next to his wife. This honor, and her beauty and gracious manner, so enraptured the poor tradesman that he secretly exclaimed, O oh heaven, the prince possesses everything that his heart wishes. He has a beautiful wife, fair daughters, and brave sons. His family establishment is too extensive. As he thus thought, the meat was placed before him, but what was his consternation to observe that it was deposited in the skull of a human being, and served from thence to the prince and his guests on silver dishes? Pretty gnarly. Not gonna lie. Yep. yep. Horror struck at what he saw, the merchant said to himself, Alas, I fear I shall lose my head in this place. <laughs> Good one, buddy. But also seriously, though, that's, that's pretty sketchy. Yeah, yeah. I, that's a good reason to be concerned. Yes. In the meantime, the lady of the mansion comforted him as much as she could. She realizes that he's upset? I guess? That's the problem with these. Yeah. They just sort of go off and skip the details, and it doesn't say, like, Oh, he was upset by this and began to weep at the table for the loss of the human life that, that was sitting there within the skull. And so the lady comforted him. There's nothing of that. It's just like, oh, he saw that there was a human skull and the lady comforted him. Okay. Did she not, is she not used to this? Is she held captive? Is that what we're learning here? Yeah, we're definitely missing some important details, I think. Okay. The night passed on and he was shown into a bedchamber hung round with cauldrons. And in one corner of the room, several lights were burning. As soon as he had entered, the door was fastened without, and the merchant was left alone in the chamber. Casting his eyes around him, he distinguished in the corner where the light was, two dead men hanging by the arms from the ceiling. Ooh. This shocking circumstance so agonized him that he was incapable of enjoying repose. Understandable. I also Fair. would not fall asleep in a room with two dead bodies. It does not sound like a restful environment. No. In the morning he got up. Alas, cried he, they will assuredly hang me by the side of these murdered wretches. When the prince had risen, he commanded the merchant to be brought into his presence. Friend, said he, what portion of my family establishment best pleases you? The man answered, I am well pleased with everything, my lord, except that my food was served to me out of a human head, a sight so sickening that I could touch nothing. And when I would have slept, my repose was destroyed by the terrific objects which were exhibited to me. And therefore, for the love of God, suffer me to depart. Bold move. Friend, replied the prince, the head out of which you were served, and which stood exactly opposite to my wife, my beautiful but wicked wife. <laughs> She's the one consoling him, oh my gosh. All right. Is the head of a certain duke. I will tell you why it was there. He whom I have punished in so exemplary a manner, I perceived in the act of dishonoring my bed. 
Oh no. Instantly prompted by an uncontrollable desire of vengeance, I separated his head from his body. To remind the woman of her shame, each day I command this memento to be placed before her, in the hope that her repentance and punishment may equal her crime. So he's slut-shaming his wife with the head of her... What's the male word for mistress? I don't know. I was going to go for lover. That works, too. Boy toy? Boy toy. <laughs> that works. Yeah, yeah. The skull of the boy toy. Not gonna lie, that's pretty dope. I mean, it seems excessive, but... True. Like, I feel like it would be more impactful if it wasn't, like, an issue of romance. Like, if it were the head of your enemies. And you're yeah, like, that would just be cool. so I can remember who I conquered, I'm gonna eat... And everything will be served to me out of the skulls of my enemies. Also, I've always wondered about that, because there's a hole where the vertebrae goes in, right? Well, I mean, it's not the vertebrae. Holes and skulls. Well, right. So how are you going to fit anything? How are you going to make a bowl out of a skull's head? Do you, like, stick a bowl in it? Is it... I think you seal up the openings with, like, silver or something. Okay, that makes sense. I just... I've never seen one. I've always been curious, because... There are so many references to like, yes, we eat out of people's skulls or whatever. And it's like, but how did, how did that work exactly? Because you've got the ear holes, the eye holes, the nose hole, and then the jaw, and then the back of the jaw where, you know, your spinal cord comes out of. So how, how is it a bowl? Yeah, I assume they plug it up with something. Again, probably metal, like melted. To yeah sealed over. See, I always thought that they put like a wooden or a metal bowl inside of the open skull head and just also sealed it sense. that way, you know? Because then it's easier washing. You just take the, the wooden one out and just leave yeah, that the would skull be much behind. To clean. Part of me wants to ask our listeners if they know how that works, but there's some implications there that I probably shouldn't get into. Yeah. Also, I don't know how common... This actually was in reality. It's just like an image that we have in a lot of fiction. It is. It's a very villainous sort of thing to do, but it seems very impractical for anyone yeah. to actually have done. Now, drowning your enemies in a vat of their own men's blood, much more practical. You can see somebody doing that. You can. I mean, you'd have to do it the way Percival did it, where you got the guy, like, tied up and hung upside down, so you don't need that much liquid in order to cut right. his head. It just seems a lot easier to me than going through the whole, I'm gonna have a skull plated to make it a bowl thing. I don't know, maybe these are the crafty types. You know, the they spend a lot of time at Michael's. There you go, yeah. Your crafty villains mm -hmm. versus your impromptu, spontaneous, spur-of-the-moment villains. Performance villains. <laughs> Your plotting villains, your pantsing villains, and your plotting villains. You there gotta... we go. That's, that's a good d division. <laughs> there you go. Done. We figured it out. So anyway, he's, he's reminding his wife not to cheat. Yes. And he goes on. A son of the deceased duke slew two of my kindred, whose bodies you observed hanging in the chamber which had been appropriated to you. Why are we putting guests in the chamber with the dead people? That I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he doesn't like sleeping there. It's Maybe that's a, the only warning? extra room they have. Oh. Anyway, yes, so... Yeah, I mean, like, although it does, like, emphasize how sprawling this estate right. is, so you'd think there would be other rooms. This was a deliberate choice, clearly. Yeah. Maybe he just wants to make a point. Don't f*** What point me. that is, I'm not sure. Yeah. All right, okay. Point made, sir. Go on. 
Every day, he says, I punctually visit their corpses to keep alive the fury which ought to animate me to revenge their deaths. That's incredibly Homeric and I love it. <laughs> it's pretty good. That's really good. Like, that's the best possible reason to be keeping corpses around, I think. Definitely. Definitely. Unless you're a maiden and, you know, you're doing it for, for the Vengeance quest for somebody else. Yeah. There are a lot of good reasons, actually, to keep corpses around in medieval literature. They just had a more corpse-friendly environment. Yeah. And recalling the adultery of my wife and the miserable slaughter of my kindred, I feel that there is no joy reserved for me in this world. Now then, go in peace, and in future judge not of the life of any man until you know more of its true nature. Oh, so this was a don't judge me? Yeah. I've been through it sort of yeah. story? <laughs> Look, dude, you just don't get it, okay? I only killed that one guy and made my wife stare at his skull every day because she cheated, okay? I'm just having a really hard time right now. Like, bro. That is not... <laughs> hmm. Interesting. The merchant gladly availed himself of the permission to depart and returned with greater satisfaction to the toils of traffic. And that's where the story ends, and I have some concerns about it. Clearly. What are your concerns? I feel like we covered a lot of concerns. Mostly, I feel like it's, it's very similar to the moral in the last story we read. It's like, hey, don't think these people are do are happy just because they're rich. It's hard being rich. It's, it's you should so be content hard. with your lot. Ugh. Yeah, it's it's sort of giving. It's hard to be rich and also rule over people and have slaves, and I'm allowed to extract any kind of vengeance I want. Don't judge me. It's like, look, don't think I have it great just because I'm insanely wealthy and rule over a kingdom. You know, I have problems too. That's so bad. I hate it. Yep. These are not very good morals. All right, cool. And of course, this one has some uh, allegories attached to it. I'll go ahead and read them. Why not? <laughs> My beloved, the prince is intended to represent any good Christian. Oh, Whose Lord. wife is the soul that sins. And being punished remembers its iniquity and its am and amends. It doesn't say that she felt any remorse in this story. I'm just saying. It does not. The adulterer is the devil. To cut off his head is to destroy our vices. Oh, wow. The slain kinsmen of the prince are love to God and to our neighbor, which the sin of our first parent annihilated. But didn't the, I don't follow that Didn't one. the prince kill the two? No, uh, kinsmen of the duke he killed killed them. It was a blood feud thing. Oh, okay, okay. That still doesn't make a lot of sense, but okay. The merchant is any good prelate or confessor to whom the truth should always be exposed. I mean, it sort of works. You, you tell him your sins and then he goes on his merry way. Yeah. Ooh. Father, forgive me for I have sinned, but don't judge me because it's fine. It, like, it's okay. What? Bro. <laughs> I really feel like the story already had a moral without them also bolting an allegory onto it. Yeah, for real. All right. The very next story I also have marked. It's also a couple pages. We definitely have time. So this is Tale 57 of Perfect Life. Oh. When Titus was emperor of Rome. So to remind everyone who hasn't listened to this a while, the reason this is called the Gesta Romanorum is that these are supposedly tales and deeds of the Romans. And so a lot of them will start off by... Naming a random emperor. 
yeah, naming a random emperor and saying, like, this happened in his reign. Or they'll just say, while a certain emperor was reigning. Yeah. We're not going to name him. Why would we do that? In this case, however, Titus is actually a character in the story, so it's less egregious. When Titus was emperor of Rome, he made a decree that the natal day of his firstborn son should be held sacred, and that whosoever violated it by any kind of labor should be put to death. So basically, he's, he's making it the like old-school Sabbath. You can't do any work on it or you're put to death. Right. This edict being promulgated, he called Virgil the learned man. Also, the necromancer. Yes, related to that, there's a footnote uh, attached to that. It says, the Latin original says, Magistrum Virgilium, Master Virgil, signifying one skillful in the occult sciences. Where did they get this idea that Virgil was some sort of magic wizard man? I have no idea. We're going to have to figure that out at some point. We absolutely do. And my other question, my follow-up question to that is, why didn't that survive in Dante's Inferno? That's another good question. It's still a medieval, like, Dante's Inferno is fundamentally still a medieval text. Yeah. And so if we have this collection of medieval stories, multiple stories now, that say that Virgil was, what what was it, like a mechanical necromancer or something? Mm Mm-hmm. Then, or, and, and now we have him being a master of the occult. Where is this? In Dante's Inferno. Maybe it's different because Dante and the people he hung out with actually read Virgil and had some idea of who he was. That's fair. Instead of it going through whatever weird game of telephone. That's true. For a little bit more context here, the Middle Ages were a time when a lot of old Latin texts were being rediscovered, more so in the late Middle Ages. And into the Renaissance. But still, these things were carried over. And a lot of people, like Max said, had this weird game of telephone with it, where it would be, in one text, it would quote Virgil, and in the next text it would say, Virgil said that blah 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 blah. And then the next text it would be, you know, I I can't think of a name. William said that Virgil wrote that blah 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 happened. And then next thing you know, someone's like, ah yes, well I read in this text that Virgil did these things, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, he's a necromancer, or whatever. Whereas the more educated, learned people of that era, including Dante, would have read some of Virgil's, maybe not original texts, but copies of manuscripts that had an original text to look at, or had something to copy that was originally Virgil. Which is why we get this weird disconnect between what Virgil said and what the medievals perceive Virgil as. Yeah, and the the game of telephone is even worse, of course, through the oral tradition, which is what's the process that a lot of these stories went through before they got written down. Exactly. Yes. But anyway, he Titus calls Virgil to him. Which also they didn't live at the same time, did they? Titus I'm gonna and assume Virgil. not, but let me check. I'll bet they didn't. Okay, you look that up. I'm gonna look up Virgil as a necromancer and just see what pops up. All right, so Titus was only emperor for a couple years, 79 to 81. Yeah, Virgil died in 19 BC. Yeah, very far apart. Okay, well, there is this text that has been reprinted that is called Virgil the Necromancer, Studies in Virgilian Legends by John Weber Spargo. And it's on Amazon as a facsimile of the original. 
and that's all I have on it. But I am very interested in reading it, so I may have to find it. Yeah, we maybe a future articles episode. Yeah. Oh, okay. Here we go. I, we can actually cite this one. Virgilius the Sorcerer is a fairy tale about the poet Virgil by Andrew Lang, who included it in the Violet Fairy book. Uh, this is a 19th century fairy tale about Virgil being a necromancer, which originated in the Middle Ages. So it's sort of how in the 1900s we had all the stories about elves and fairies, and it's the fairy tales that we're more familiar with. Mm -hmm. Those came from the old folklore of the Middle Ages and before. The same thing apparently happened with Virgil. That's all. That's all that I have on it. Definitely we should do a future articles episode on, like, Virgil. For sure. Anyway. Anyway. Titus calls Virgil to him. Yes, and says, Good friend, I have established a certain law, but as offenses may frequently be committed without being discovered by the ministers of justice, I desire you to frame some curious piece of art which may reveal to me every transgressor of the law. Every single one. Yes, so he wants... Virgil to make something magical that will tell him whenever anyone is trying to do labor on his son's birthday so he can kill them. A useful spell, if hard to create, I would imagine. Well, Virgil required, Sire, your will shall be accomplished. He straightway constructed a magic statue and caused it to be erected in the midst of the city. You okay there? Yes. Again, we have this idea that he's building things. He's this magician who's also a tinkerer. He's an artificer. An artificer, indeed. (laughs) By virtue of the secret powers with which it was invested, it communicated to the emperor whatever offenses were committed in secret on that day. So he's basically made a police state. Okay, but imagine this. Pseudo-medieval video game. Like, medieval times, but in the future. So there's remnants of old 21st century life, right? Like a Vancean dying world thing? Yeah, yeah. And then you got this cityscape, and in the center of it is just a massive statue of whatever emperor exists at this time. And it can see if you transgress the law, or like that's that's the legend around it, is that it sees all and it's a magic spell. That's what I'm thinking with this. I mean, yeah, pretty much. Ooh. Thus, by the accusation of the statue, an infinite number of persons were convicted. You literally can't have an infinite number. I assume it's hyperbole, but it says an infinite number. I also assume that Virgil's spell didn't work. Because if it's an infinite number, that would mean everybody in the city. So what does it think work is? Like, you literally lift a finger. Oh, that's work. You're dead now. Well, this might be more wide-ranging. It does say whatever offenses were committed in secret, not specifically, like, that law. So maybe it communicates all crimes. Oh my gosh. That's some slapdash sorcery. Or maybe it is just working on the day you're not supposed to work. Who knows? The point is, there was a certain carpenter called Focus who pursued his occupation every day alike. Once, as he lay in bed, his thoughts turned upon the accusations of the statue and the multitudes which it had caused to perish. In the morning he clothed himself and proceeded to the statue, which he addressed in the following manner. O statue, statue, because of thy informations, many of our citizens have been apprehended and slain. I vow to my God that if thou accusest me, I will break thy head. 
I don't know why he thinks the magical statue is is susceptible to threats. Well, maybe it's a geish. He's a carpenter. He's not a magician. I didn't think that the guy in the Volsunga saga was a magician either. He was just a guy too. Anybody can invoke a geish. Fair enough. You just have to have enough willpower behind it and enough intention behind it. That's my working theory. All right, I will accept that. Because he was he was like a peasant guy. He's like, you, t- you better take care of my daughter or my kid or whatever, or else you have horrible days all the days of your life. I'm not sure I remember that specifically. I'm pretty sure that anybody can do a geish. All right, anyway, I believe you. Anyway, so he's threatening the statue. Yes. Having so said, he returned home. About the first hour, the emperor, as he was wont, dispatched sundry messengers to the statue to inquire if the edict had been strictly complied with. After they had arrived and delivered the emperor's pleasure, the statue exclaimed, Friends, look up, what see ye written upon my forehead? They looked and beheld three sentences which ran thus, Times are altered, men grow worse, he who speaks truth will have his head broken. Go, said the statue, declare to his majesty what you have seen and read. The messengers obeyed and detailed the circumstances as they had happened. Alright, so I'm interested. He said, the one who speaks truth will have his head broken. Yeah. So does the statue, rather, I presume the statue knows that if it says that focus worked, because focus works every day, he knows that he will have his head broken in. Yeah. Okay. And somehow he caused that to be written on his forehead. Because he can, because he's a magic statue. All right. The emperor, therefore, commanded his guard to arm and marched to the place on which the statue was erected. And he further ordered that if anyone presumed to molest it, they should bind him hand and foot and drag him into his presence. The soldiers approached the statue and said, Our emperor wills you to declare who have broken the law and who they were that threatened you. So, like, they understand that the statue is reacting to a threat somehow. Okay. The statue made answer, Seize Focus the Carpenter. Every day he violates the law and moreover menaces me. (laughs) Snarky. I know, right? It's a tattletale. This is what I expect from Virgil's statue, though. Yeah. Immediately Focus was apprehended and conducted to the emperor, who said, Friend, what do I hear of thee? Why dost thou break my law? My lord, answered Focus, I cannot keep it. For I am obliged to obtain every day eight pennies, which, without incessant labor, I have not the means of acquiring. The plot thickens. Why does he need eight pennies? And why eight pennies, said the emperor. Oh! Every day through the year, returned the carpenter, I am bound to repay two pennies which I borrowed in my youth. Two I lend, two I lose, and two I spend. I mean, he's, he's got his accounting. You must make this more clear, said the emperor. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. I mean, I would also be confused if someone said, like, I have to make eight pennies because every day I lose two of them. He's just super clumsy. It's weird. Why, why exactly two? Why do you always lose two? How are you storing your pennies in such a way that this is happening? That's fair. I would also be concerned. But so the emperor asks for clarity. My lord, he replied, listen to me. I am bound each day to repay two pennies to my father, for when I was a boy, my father expended upon me daily the like sum. Now he is poor and needs my assistance, and therefore I return what I borrowed formerly. Two other pennies I lend to my son, who is pursuing his studies, 
in order that if, by any chance, I should fall into poverty, he may restore the loan, just as I have done to his grandfather. Again, I'd lose two pennies every day. Wanna guess why he loses two pennies every day? His wife steals them? On my wife, for she is contradictious, willful, and passionate. What? <laughs> hate that I could guess that from this. It's always a woman. It's always a woman in these stories. It's always the woman. Damn. How gross. Like, not that it's a woman. Like, it's gross that all of these texts always blame any falsehood or issue or impudence on a woman. Yep. <sighs> uh, he says, now because of this disposition, her contradictious which is not a word I've encountered before. Mm -mm. Willful and passionate disposition. Wow. I account whatsoever is given to her entirely lost. I mean, at least he's making a financial contribution for her. He's put that into his accounting. Yeah, yeah but I mean, that's just so like, oh, you know, the wife be shopping. <laughs> and what about you, bro? Yeah, that's the last part. Lastly, two other pennies I expend upon myself in meat and drink. Maybe maybe that's what she's doing. Maybe she's just accounting for herself and her son. Maybe. You never know. It does not, it's not clear. Anyway, okay, anyway. I would like a breakdown of these expenses. I cannot do with less, nor can I obtain them without unremitting labor. You now know the truth, and, I pray you, give a righteous judgment. Friend, said the emperor, thou hast answered well. Go and labor earnestly in thy calling. Soon after this, the emperor died. And Focus the Carpenter, on account of his singular wisdom, was elected in his stead by the unanimous choice of the whole nation. The unanimous choice of the entire nation. Yes, because of his great wisdom. Wow. They elected him emperor. I wish I could say that I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I guess. Cool. Way to go, Focus. At least you know he's going to be a dedicated representative. And it, it should be noted that even as bizarre as it sounds to have an elected emperor, there were, that kind of thing did happen. Mm -hmm. Like there were times when the emperor was chosen not by popular demand, but by like the vote of the Senate or the military or something. And at the time when these were being written, the Holy Roman Emperor was often elected by an assortment of nobles. Yep. Not by the unanimous choice of the whole nation no. because commoners didn't vote. Right. But they weren't even citizens for the, for a large majority of the time. But if they're assuming that the actual Roman Empire worked the same as the Holy Roman Empire, it doesn't it's not quite so insane to say that he was elected. He was elected. Right. Now I kind of want to know who actually was emperor after Titus. Cuz there were uh there was an emperor focus. Was there? That was Byzantine. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Focus family had a couple emperors actually. That's right. See, they do get some of these names right. They just put them in the wrong order. Yeah. Also, I don't think the Focus family were known for being carpenters. I believe they came to power through the military. That would make a lot more sense. But this is just what I remember from listening to Totalis Rankium. <laughs> also, I totally should have remembered who came after Titus because he was succeeded by his brother Domitian, who is well known as one of the crazy emperors. That's Yeah. See, after doing all of the history of Rome and then doing the Byzantines... At a certain point, I completely lost track of what emperor came after the next one. Fair, fair. I just liked, um, who was it? It was like Romulus Superbus. 
who was like the 12th emperor of Rome or something like that. He was like the final one and he was such a tyrant. They killed him and set up the Republic. The last king of Rome. Yes. Tarquinius super. There super it is. Was. Yeah, Tarquinius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember learning his name and I was like, oh, right on. Tarquinius Superbus. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> You know, That's I was. How I always read it too. Because I was eight at the time, or whatever. <laughs> Superbus. Superbus. Nice. After that, I just lose track. And while we're recommending podcasts, that's information I have from listening to the Partial Historians. Boom! Very nice. There's some really good history podcasts out there. Yeah, highly recommend both of those, both Totalis Rankium and the Partial Historians. But regardless, there's still a few more sentences here, or rather, there's one more sentence. Aha. Uh-huh. He, Focus the Carpenter, governed as wisely as he had lived, and at his death, his picture, bearing on the head eight pennies, was reposited among the effigies of the deceased emperors. That's kind of cute. It is. That's really cute. Although I'm still confused about why they're like, oh, he was so wise. Like, Probably because no one had ever had an emperor who actually worked every single day. That's true. I presume he kept his work ethic. I would hope so. Yeah. I don't know. I'm very confused by by that. Where they're like, oh, of course. Your wisdom in your financial planning is so great <laughs> that we must exempt you from the law. Of, and obviously. elect you emperor. Why not? He's just so cool. Anyway, once again, the application is short, so I'll read it. My beloved. Actually, I'm not sure if this is actually as short as the application is because... I think the person who compiled this version summarized a lot of them. That's right, because they were all just the same thing. Yeah, but the one provided is short, so I'll read it. My beloved, the emperor is God. The emperor is always God in these. Who appointed Sunday as a day of rest. (laughs) Here we go. By Virgil is typified the Holy Spirit, which ordains a preacher to declare men's virtues and vices. Focus is any good Christian who labors diligently in his vocation and performs faithfully every relative duty. Okay. Again, it doesn't quite track. So where does the day of rest come in? Isn't that the whole point? You're supposed to have a day of rest? God ordained it. Where do you get off saying, oh, well, I'm not going to because I'm a good Christian? I don't remember my Bible very well because, again, it's been forever since I picked it up or stepped into a church but i do seem to remember there being some stories of jesus ignoring the day of rest and saying like hey maybe if you have a good reason yeah that you is don't true have to kill people for it that is true and specifically because by that point and including today the pharisees and very strict jews are very, very careful about what you can do. So it was something like you cannot take more than 40 steps away from your own home or it's considered work or travel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like very, things that we wouldn't consider necessarily as work would be considered work. And so there was one where like Christ healed somebody on a Sabbath and they got all upset. They're like, how could you, how could you miraculously heal somebody on the, on, on a Sabbath? And he's like, bruh, it's the kingdom of God, chill, essentially. So yeah, yeah, Christ Christ did do that. Yeah, so maybe that's what this is referring to. That would, that would make a lot of sense. That's a good call. Still, though, kind of weird. The next story isn't that interesting. I just want to note that there's a king called Asmodeus in it. Nice. Yeah, that's it. He's, he's what, a devil, right? He's one of the devils, yeah. technically. 
Yeah, Asmodeus is a devil. Actually, I'm going to look that up. Because Asmodeus is a devil in D&D, but I don't know where that comes from. Oh, good point. Isn't that funny how sometimes you get so used to certain things? Yeah. Oh, apparently he's from the Book of Tobit. Ah, yes. That's one of the forbidden gospels, isn't it? Apparently it's considered by the Catholic Church to be canonical, but not Protestant Ah, yes. Okay. There are a few of those. Like Judith, actually. My first time ever reading Judith, because I grew up in a Protestant church, Protestant community, was in Old English in my master's degree. That was the first time I ever read Judith. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> oh, that's right. There is an Old English Judith. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's in the same manuscript as Beowulf, yep. isn't it? Yep. So I'm reading this like, where is this in my Bible? Ah, you don't get it. It's only for the only Catholics. Only for the Catholics. But she's so cool. She chopped a guy's head off. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, apparently, that's where Asmodeus is from, is the Book of Tobit, and he is a demon in that one. So, there we go. Makes sense. At least according to Wikipedia. Boom. All right, I think we have time for one more. Yes, we should. Future Mac here. Past Mac forgot to actually say the title of this one. This is Tale 61 of Reflection. The Emperor Claudius had an only daughter who was incomparably beautiful. As he lay in bed, he reflected seriously upon the best mode of disposing of her. Oh. Which is terrible phrasing. As in, like, disposing of her, as in getting her married off, or... Yes. Okay, cool. I just wanted yeah, to the check. The story means getting her married off, mm-hmm. but that is not what that phrase sounds yeah, like no. to a modern ear. Mm-mm. All right, cool. If thought he, I should marry her to a rich fool, it will occasion her death. Don't know why. Because he'll get angry and kill her over nothing. Oh yeah, that's... You forget. That does sound like a rich fool thing to do. (laughs) You forget, Mac, we are still technically in the genre of fairy tales. We've got our beautiful princess, we've got her dad, who's a king in power, and, you know, we've got the horrible fool of a boyfriend who will kill her. I thought in fairy tales the fools were always wise. Well, like, the, the the fools by occupation, yes. The fools by nature, no. Ah. Anyway, he doesn't want to give her to a rich fool, because it will lead to her death. Yes. But if I bestow her upon a wise man, although he be poor, his own wit will procure him riches. And there's a uh, footnote here. It was a maxim of Themistocles. I don't know who that is. I've heard of him. That his daughter had better marry a man without an estate than an estate without a man. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I think that's clever. Themistocles was an Athenian politician and general. A non-aristocratic politician. Which is where that would come from. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Now, it happened that there dwelt in the city a philosopher called Socrates. Oh, come on. Okay. I, I hate him. You hate Socrates? I hate Socrates. He's really annoying, okay? <laughs> okay, he is really annoying. I gotta give you that. Like, there's that, and then was it Plato with the Phaedrus? Well, they're one and the same, yeah. because Plato is the person who writes down all of Socrates' stuff. Right. So, and I don't like either of them, essentially. And I distinctly remember freshman year, we all had to watch some 80s film of, again, I can't remember, which one drank the hemlock? Socrates, Socrates drank, drank the hemlock. Yeah. And so we were we were watching this 80s film or like 60s film, whatever it was. And I turn back because I hear this in like the school theater. We're all sitting in. I turn back and I see my professor dead drunk 
sobbing over Socrates' death, like crying, just sitting there. He sees he sees this film every single year, and he would show up like <sighs> it was a long period class, and so he would at some point halfway through the class he would say, "Okay, we're all, we're going to take a seven minute break." And it was seven minutes because that was exactly how long he took to get through a cigarette. So he would go out in the middle of class, smoke a cigarette, come back in, and continue with class. And so I look back and I just see him sobbing through this horrible 60s film. And I could never get over that. Between that and the Phaedrus, I was like, I can't do Socrates anymore. That's it. (laughs) I'm done. Did you say he was drunk? Yeah, he had a habit of, and this is allegation, so to be fair to this professor, he didn't make a lot of sense when he was in class, number one, and two, he would always come in with like the little, like, you know, when you go to a party and there's those like clear little plastic cups and they're not that big, he would always come in with like a little one of those halfway filled and on his smoke break, he would always refill it, but none of us ever saw him refill it. And there was just enough of a of an understanding that maybe it was vodka. That does make sense. Right? So, I don't know. Because we also talked about Aristotle, and I, I remember him saying in response to my question, because we started with the metaphysics. I don't know why you would start Aristotle with the metaphysics of all things. Mm-hmm. But we started, and I asked him why. I'm like, why are we not starting with something, you know, more basic? We're freshmen. What's going on here? And he said it was because Aristotle called it the first kind of philosophy, as in... That sounds familiar. The highest kind. Like, it's the first. It's the highest. It's the hardest one to do because it's, quote unquote, the most pure. And I just, I was so pissed by that answer. (laughs) I'm like, that's not what that means! But anyway. Where was this again? I might want to work somewhere where you can get away with that. <laughs> this was in Seattle. Uh. Mm-hmm. So it was it was quite the environment. But yeah, I just I did not have a lot of fun in that philosophy class between all of those things. But we would time him. We would time him for seven minutes. We would wait. Anyway, yes. So Socrates shows up. Yes, yes. There dwelt in the city a philosopher named Socrates, whom the king very greatly esteemed. I don't know if this is supposed to be the Socrates, because that's obviously not at the same time as Claudius. Of course. But why not? Well, why not? This person was sent for and thus addressed. My good friend, I design to espouse you to my only daughter. All right. Socrates, overjoyed at the proposal, expressed his gratitude as he best could. But, continued the emperor... Take her with this condition, that if she die first, you shall not survive her. Oh, shoot. The philosopher assented. The nuptials were solemnized with great splendor, and for a length of time their happiness was uninterrupted. But at last she sickened, and her death was hourly expected. This deeply afflicted Socrates, and he retired into a neighboring forest and gave free course to his alarm. So he ran into the- So I assume he's just running around in circles, (laughs) screaming. Screaming, absolutely, yes. That's exactly what I would be doing. Whilst he was thus occupied, it chanced that King Alexander... The Great? And there's a footnote here. The introduction of Alexander the Great, Socrates, and a Roman emperor is a strange jumble of times and persons. No kidding. Alright. We got them all! It chanced that King Alexander hunted in the same forest, 
and that a soldier of his guard discerned the philosopher and rode up to him. Who art thou? asked the soldier. I am, replied he, the servant of my master, and he who is the servant of my master is the lord of thine. There he goes, beginning in riddles again. I know, that that at least does seem in character. <laughs> How, cried the other, there is not a greater person in the universe than he whom I serve. But since you are pleased to say otherwise, I will presently lead you to him, and we will hear who thy lord is. Accordingly, he was brought before Alexander. Friend, said the king, concerning whom dost thou say that his servant is my master? The philosopher answered, My master is reason. Oh, his come servant on. is the will. <laughs> I hate this guy in all of his forms. Now dost thou not govern thy kingdom according to the dictates of thy will? Therefore, thy will is thy master, but the will is the servant of my master, so that what I said is true, and thou canst not disprove it. Alexander, wondering at the man's wit, candidly answered in the affirmative, and ever after ruled both himself and his kingdom by the laws of reason. Now back to the actual story, because that's just a weird interpolation. <laughs> God bless. All right. Socrates, however, entered further into the forest and wept bitterly over the expected decease of his wife. He's not going to be by her side. That's so I feel cruel. like he's too self-centered for that. That's fair. He's so concerned over the fact that her death means his death that he's not going to like. He can't see past it. Yeah. In the midst of his distress, he was accosted by an old man who inhabited that part of the wood. Master, said he, why art thou afflicted? Alas, answered the other, I have espoused the daughter of an emperor upon the condition that if she die, I should die with her. She is now on the point of death, and my life therefore will certainly be required. What, said the old man, grievest thou for this? Take my counsel, and thou shalt be safe enough. Thy wife is of royal descent. Let her besmear her breast with some of her father's blood. Then... Do thou search in the depths of this forest, where thou wilt find three herbs. Of one of them make a beverage and administer it to her. The other two beat into a plaster and apply it to the afflicted part. If my instructions are exactly attended to, she will be restored to perfect health. Socrates did as he was directed, and his wife presently recovered. When the emperor knew how he had striven to find a remedy for his wife's disorder, he loaded him with riches and honors. The End I... Zoe's making incredulous faces for the listeners. That's it? That's it? Yep. I mean, aside from the leech book, you know, bit in the middle there, what good is this? I mean, I don't know, because I've seen this motif in, like, actual fairy tales. Yeah. The, the like, you marry a, a noble woman, and one of the conditions is that if she dies, you, you die. die. That's That's a thing in folklore. Yes, yes. But usually there's more to it than, oh, have some medicine, now she won't die. Yeah. Usually there's a cure, a miracle cure, but there's a cost to it. Mm -hmm. Is usually how it goes. Like, oh, you have to sleep with a fairy queen or, you know, something like that. Yeah, and the version I remember most, she actually does die. And the guy's walled up in the tomb. And he has a moment like in the Volsunga saga with the weasels where he sees like an animal heal another animal oh, from the point yeah. of death. And yeah. he resurrects his wife. Yep, yep. Wow. Okay. Well, huzzah. But yeah, Socrates' version is not as good. That's because anything with Socrates is not as good. Anyway, would you like to know the allegorical explanation of this one? Of course I would. Tell me who Socrates is. Not mentioned. 
Come on, man. I wanted one thing out of this story. <laughs> My beloved, the emperor is our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the emperor is always God or Jesus or... Whatever. <laughs> whatever, because... God slash Jesus has to be the emperor, because that's how theology works, apparently. <laughs> the daughter is the soul, given to man, so I guess Socrates is man. Oh, okay, yeah. On condition that, should it be destroyed by sin, he should also lose eternal life. The priest is the church, where health and safety may be found. The priest? Yeah, there's no priest in this story. The, the, the man? Like, the wandering nope. old man? Nope, that's the next sentence. Oh, Okay. I guess the priest at their wedding who was not mentioned. I suppose. The old man is a wise confessor. Aren't confessors priests anyway? Yes. Okay. We'll, we'll just put those two together. And Alexander is the world. Zoe is making confused faces for the <laughs> listeners. I'm, ju I'm just trying to put that one together. Hang on. I'm, I'm thinking about the allegory. Okay, so Socrates is all like, oh... You must be ruled with reason. And then Alexander goes home and is forever ruled by reason. So they're saying that the world is ruled by reason? Is is that what is that what the point is? Because really? I guess. They need to work on their exegesis. They do. Well, again, I think there's supposed to be more and it's just being summarized. Fair enough. But still, the allegory but is yeah, flawed. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make sense on its surface. Oh, man. All right. Okay. Shall we go through our segments then? Yes, let's. What say you? Best dialogue. I mean, I think the best one is the old lady talking to King Dionysius and saying that the reason she prays for his life is because every time a tyrant dies, they get a worse one. 100%. That's the snappiest thing. Yeah, I, th I thought that was pretty good. That one's good. That one's good. What was the first story again? Oh, the first story really was one with one. the leaves and the Oh, big yeah. Pit. There wasn't even any dialogue in that one. Okay. There was not We could count that for our best death, though. Altobrast. I think it might be the only death we had, so it might have to be. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, no, there was the, uh, the duke who was beheaded in bed. That's true. Which I think is cooler since they made his skull into a serving vessel. That's after death. True. It's not the best way to... I mean, neither one is the best way to die. I do like the idea of being weighed down by leaves somehow. Yeah. I'm kind of fascinated with that one. I'm calling that one the best death just because it's so right. bizarre. I will agree with you. Okay. What in the world are we pulling to use in a D&D &D game? Aside from, obviously, the skull of your enemies. Right. I mean, obviously, obviously, the skulls of your enemies should be made into serving vessels. For sure. Actually, I think that would be a great one to use somehow. If the villain or a bad guy or something makes the players look at the skulls of like their friends and loved ones as a major consequence. He invites them all to a lavish dinner and he's like, oh, yes, you can't come at me here because it's a party. And then all the serving dishes are just the skulls of the people they love. That is pretty good. You can have a lot of fun with that one. What else? You also mentioned earlier making the statue into something in a game, and I think that's pretty good. I think that would be really cool. Especially if you tied it up with the gods, I think. Like, if a, if a mm. city is either plagued or blessed, depending on how you want to play it, by a big statue that looks out over all the city and is ruled by that patron or god or whatever, 
and either the players lift the curse or they get a favor or something and they have to navigate the city while being under its eye that could be fun for consequences given how much players love to dick around right (laughs) yeah having a statue narc on them (laughs) every time and the words change on its forehead Mm -hmm. that'd be pretty good i think it might be kind of interesting to work in the like we must be content with our lot the king is appointed by god that whole ethos into your NPCs to give a more, I don't want to say realistic, but to give... A different perspective. Yeah, a different perspective on kind of medieval morality. Yes, definitely. And and how you're expected to think. Yeah. And mix that with a noble or something who has the, oh, I still have it bad guys mentality. Yes. Combining those two could be really, really interesting and frustrating for players to have to deal with is you've got, for instance, small town, the lord of the small town is like, oh, no, I still have it really bad, you guys. You don't understand. And everyone in the town is saying like, oh, well, this is just our lot. This is this is how life is. And your players come into that and they see acts of injustice. And next thing you know, they want to make a difference. They want to do something better. But the people around them say, no, 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 it's fine. If you mess with us, you're just going to make it worse. How do your players deal with that, react to that? What are the consequences of those actions? Do some people snap out of it? Do they change their perspective? Do they, you know, dig their heels in? That could be really interesting to play with. Yeah, it really could. That's great for like a a very heavy narrative campaign. Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else? That's all I had. Ooh, Virgil. Bring back Virgil. Yes, Virgil the Mechanical Necromancer. He'd be a great NPC. Heck, he'd be a great character to play. Mm -hmm. He'd be fun. All right. How many ages hence shall this, our lofty scene, be acted over? Do we have any echoes in modern culture here? Except for this weird exegesis. I mean, we do still have people who have the opinion of, hey, this is just how it is. That's true. And let's see, I did mention that um, we still have fairy tales with that same Mm, motif mm -hmm. of like the you have to die with your wife thing. Yes, definitely. So that's kind of an echo of the same oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the morality tale is still around for sure. All right. Omitatus. Who do we want in a D and D party? Who do we? How do we put these together? Well, you already mentioned Virgil. Virgil. Do we even want to consider Socrates? I mean, what is he? The party bard. He didn't actually do much in the story. Come to think of that's it, that's true. Who else did we have? Alexander. We did have Alexander. He was pretty cool. Oh, we had the the prince who's, you know, killing his enemies and beheading his adulteress's wife's lover. Yeah, he's pretty cool. He's pretty cool. Okay, so fighter. I mean, he's whiny, but... Yeah, he is. Can't have it all. Okay, so we've got the edgelord fighter, the necromancer. Who else do we want? I feel like at this point it's just named characters. Socrates, yeah. the bard. Yeah. And who else? Let's see, what are other named characters? Emperor Titus, King Alexander, Emperor Claudius. But they don't do much, except for Alexander. This is a weak party, come on. We could add the old woman who prays for King Dionysus. Yeah, we'll throw her in there, why not? Paladin. <laughs> or cleric or something. She could be cleric. Alright, there we go. Boom. It's not very well-rounded, but it's a party. 
It's not great. It's not great. We 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 had slim pickings. Yeah. Oh yeah. All right. The Dungeon Master's Dictionary. Any terminology? Ooh, you had that one word that you didn't see show up anywhere else. Yeah, I I have never seen the word. What is it? Contradictious. I think it was. That just sounds like a, I mean, a Roman it's name. Just from contradiction, but. Tis I, contradictious. Yeah, contradictious. I guess it wouldn't be. Tisn't I, contradictious. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Street smarts. Street smarts. Break surveillance devices. Short, clear, to the point, excellent moral. Comes straight through the text. We're done. Yeah. That's it. Call it here. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any other good morals from this. Oh, we had focus. We totally forgot about focus. Oh, yeah, we did. He's like a good, I don't know, would he be a, who are the ones who rage? Barbarians. Barbarians? Yeah. He's cool. He's cool. Yeah, he's all right. All right. I don't know, any other lessons? I think focus does teach us to make a stand for ourselves. Because next thing you know, you're going to be Ember. Right, somehow. He was a self-made man, and you know where it got him? To the top. For those who can't tell, this is satire. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what I've got for this one. Best moment. Still the old lady? It might still be the old lady. I really do like when Focus goes up to the statue and threatens it, and then the statue's like, oh no, man, I was threatened, and, and like somehow lets everybody know with like the I writing like on his that, forehead. Actually. I like the idea of just threatening the magic statue yeah. and it actually working. Because, I mean, the statue's just doing his job, man, and then this carpenter guy's like, I'm going to bust your fucking head in. He's like, okay, all right. <laughs> And he also manages to, like, complain about how, oh, times are terrible where one who speaks the truth can have his head back. Yeah. (laughs) I kind of like the statue. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? I think that is. I think that's the best moment. Yeah. That one's a fun one. The court. You get to pick first. Okay. See, it's going to either be Virgil or Focus. It's got to be one of those two. Have I already picked Virgil? I don't think anyone's already picked Virgil. I want Virgil, because he's a mechanical necromancer, and that's really cool. I was worried you were going to pick him. I wanted him. Aww. All right, let's see. Who's left? Um, Yeah, I'll take Focus the Carpenter. Focus is cool. It's like, I would take Socrates or Alexander, but they don't really do much in these texts. Uh-uh, they're not that cool. Final rating. I feel like these were, these were pretty subpar as far as the Gesta Romanorum goes. We've had some cool Gesta Romanorum stories, but these weren't as strong. Yeah, I feel like we usually do them individually. Oh yeah, we do. And then we just blob them all together. Yeah. Okay, well the first one was like a three. I think I'll match that, yeah. Because that was rough. Was not well composed. No. And then the second one was which, that was the old lady one. Yeah, I thought that was, it was snappy. That was It was short, sweet, to the point. I'll give it an eight. I didn't like the moral, so I'll only give it a five. Oh yeah, that's fair, the moral. Do we include the moral? Well, I think it was, in this case, it was pretty clear from the actual text. Yeah, that's true. Okay, okay. I'll do like a six, just because I really like the old lady. All right. All right, what's the next one? 
And the names for being so descriptive are really not easy to differentiate. No. One's like, of ruinous fortune. And the next is, of forgotten sins. And it's just like reading a really bad fantasy series. Oh, the next one is the one with the skull. Oh, yeah. That one was also not as strong. No, I didn't like it much. I'll give that one a I four. Just, I think I just put it in because of the weirdness of, like, serving from a skull. Yeah. I'll give that one a four. It's interesting to, to glance over, but it's not compelling. I will match you. Oof, rough ones today. The next one is the one with the magic statue. That one's pretty good. I'll do seven. I think I'm going to give it a six, because I do think it's a bit silly. It's very silly. But I like the detail of his statue with his eight coins, and I just am enamored by this idea of Necromancer, Virgil, and the statue. Yeah, it's pretty good. All right, and the last one is the one with Socrates. Ugh. That one didn't even make any sense. I give that one a two. I'm not quite as anti-Socrates <laughs> as you are, but it didn't make a lot of sense. I'll give it a three. Rough ones in all for this one. Welcome to the Leech's Corner. The crane is hot and has a clean nature. It can both fly and move about on land. It flies willingly with a, with a multitude and can very easily avoid snares. It has a great strength in its neck, is straightforward and cautious, has an alert disposition, a skill which forewarns it so no bird or beast can easily harm it. Its flesh is good for sick and healthy people to eat, but its eggs are not. A person who is troubled by gout should frequently eat its meat, and the gout will cease. One who has Wicht, which I don't know what that is. Hang on. Let me get my little German translator. I wonder why this translation you have always... This is not the first time we've seen a sickness left untranslated. Yeah. Well, it just means maybe in English, so I don't have a good answer to that yeah, one. Yeah, that's not hugely helpful. Mm -hmm. But anyway... If you have Wicht, you should frequently eat its liver. If a pestilence is troubling and killing pigs, pulverize the bill of a crane and give this powder to them to eat in a mush or to drink in water. They will be better and the pestilence will go from them. Also, dry and save crane's blood as well as its right foot. If any woman labors with a difficult childbirth, crush some of the dried blood in a bit of water and rub, oh my, and rub the top of the vulva with it. I wouldn't particularly want that close to my vulva, but fascinating. What if it was the left foot? Would that help? The foot I have no problem with. The The blood is... I really wouldn't want Crane's blood, well, on me in general, but particularly not there. Make the woman look at herself in the water mixed with blood as if in a mirror. Tie the right foot of the stork over her umbilical cord. The power in these things is so great that the closed viscera and loins will be more quickly open for childbirth. Other parts of the crane are of no value. Oh, oh, okay. So tie it over her belly button and it'll open. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Maybe because, like, maybe because cranes are swift. Is that where we got the whole, like, crane carrying a baby thing? Is this a medieval I thing? I that was storks. Well, she uses stork as well. Cranes and storks. Maybe. Interesting. Well, they have... Medieval connections to childbirth, apparently. All right. I like the bit about mixing blood and water and using it like a mirror. That's pretty... That's something to include in stuff. Yeah, that's very witchcraft. Very witchcrafty. I like it. I always wondered how you would dry and preserve blood. I mean, I'd guess you just put it in a 
in a, in a container with a hole so it can ev- evaporate. I guess, and whatever's left over is just what you use. Interesting. Hmm. All right, uh, swan. The swan is cold and moist. It has some of the nature of a goose, some of the nature of a duck. It bathes it. Are those very different natures? Have you ever met a goose versus a duck? That's true. What's well, What part of the swan has a duck nature? Because swans and geese are both known for attacking people. I think they're slightly more elegant. They're, they're a little bit nicer. Not much, but a little bit. It bathes itself freely in water, likes water and land more than flight, and sometimes forages for unclean things in water. Its flesh is good for healthy people to eat, but is of no value for sick people. A person who is congested should cook its liver and eat it often. It will take out the rotten matter from the lungs and he will be cured. One who ails in his spleen should often cook and eat the lung of a swan, and his spleen will be healed. One who has a rash on his body should fatten a swan, and when it is killed, take the fat and dissolve it in a small dish. Then he should add equal weights of mugwort and oak bark to the fat so that there is twice as much fat. He should cook it again in the dish, making an ointment. He should often anoint himself with this. The skin where he first anoints himself will become blistered, but will quickly heal afterward. The other parts of the swan are not much of value for medicine. That one makes sense to me. Really? Yeah. Because you're just taking the fat and making a salve out of it with mugwort and oak bark. And mugwort has a lot of medicinal properties, if I recall correctly. All right, I guess I can accept that. Because you're not ingesting it, you're just putting it on a rash to settle to settle the skin down. That one makes sense to me. I find it odd that she's like, its flesh doesn't have medicinal properties, and then she describes how to use its fat and its liver medicinally. I guess goose flesh doesn't have, or swan flesh doesn't have medicinal properties. Are not... Fat and liver included in flesh? Well, I guess I was thinking of skin. That's different. I don't know. I guess it's like it's meat. I don't know. Interesting. The next one is the heron. The heron is hot and dry. Its flesh is good for sick as well as healthy people, since it does not make mucus in a person's stomach. A person who has a sad mind should often eat its heart, and it will make his mind happy. One whose eyes ache or are clouded should cook the head of a heron in water. Once it's cooked, he should take the eyes and dry them in the sun. Ew. He should then place them in cold water for a little while so they become soft. Again, ew. Yeah, this is a gross This is real nasty. Again, he should dry them and repeat this three times. After doing this, he should crush the eyes into a powder. Then, only when the person's eyes are clouded or painful, he should put this powder in good pure wine and dip a feather in it. With this, he should smear around the eyelids and eyelashes. If he should touch the inside of his eyes a bit, it will not injure them. That's good to know. He should often do this at night when he goes to sleep, and it will take the cloudiness and pain from his eyes. One whose stomach has hardened so that he has constriction should often eat Heron's liver, and it will soften his stomach. One whose spleen is ailing should shave a sufficient amount of Heron bones in water and frequently drink this at night while fasting, and he will be better. That was much less weird than I was expecting when you started with shave. Yeah, oh, like, same. I'm going to shave a Heron. <laughs> shave the Heron entirely. Like, shave the bones, which is cooler. Yes. Much cooler. Yeah, that's that's one heck of an eye cure. Yeah, I do like it, the elaborateness, but it's also... Pretty, pretty gross. Nice. All right, the next one is vulture. So, the vulture is of a cold nature, and it knows the skills of both birds and beasts. It is a prophet among birds, and that goes back to ancient Rome, because you would do augury with vultures. I thought you did augury with all sorts of birds, though. Well, you could, but eagles and vultures were the, the two most popular, if I, if I recall correctly. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
It flies to such an altitude to that which much of the Earth's humor ascends, that is, the heat of the air. It does no harm to other birds, but warns them lest they be harmed by another. It eats dead bodies and sometimes forages in Earth, which is suffused with blood of animals, that is, where animals were killed. I like the idea that it warns other birds. Yeah. Well, I guess it does, in a sense. Like, oh, there's danger. There's a dead body here. It's going to circle. One ought not to eat of its flesh because of the coldness in it would be mortal for a human. The brain of the vulture has this nature. If a person were able to have it uninjured, it would dispel every infirmity except death. But a human is not able to have it uncorrupted because when death invades the vulture in any way, so that its vital air leaves, that is its breath of life, the thin skin of the brain is broken and soon the brain dissipates so that it loses its power. So if you got there, like, immediately. Yes. Then you you would have ultimate healing power from a vulture brain. That's interesting. Yeah. I also really like that she doesn't vilify this bird. Yeah, since usually vultures kind of are, but she seems to be giving it, you know, positive attributes. Exactly. They're one of my favorite birds, vultures and condors. I really like them. I like them. They're cool. Anyway, when you kill a vulture, remove its feathers while it is still warm, cut its body, and throw away only the intestines in which there is dung. Cook the rest of its body with the head and the heart, liver and lungs vigorously in water in a new clay pot. I thought it said not to eat them. Hmm? I thought it said not to eat them. Not to eat vultures? Yeah. Did I make that up? Let me check. Yes. Do not eat it. Well, it's not for eating. You're not cooking it to eat it. You're cooking it to make medicine. Oh, okay. Yes. Then add a bit of olive oil and then some henbane oil to the fat and make an unguent. Or however you say that. Yeah, a salve. With this oil, anoint the entire head of one who is insane and the whole body of one who is virgicht. Hang on. Virgichtiget. Virgichtiget. Whatever that German word is. I'm so sorry. And in one whom git or gout torments, use it for one who has any infirmity in his back, loins, or any other part of his body. He will be cured unless God does not wish to cure him. The old fallback. Yeah, good fallback. (laughs) This ointment is more precious than the most precious ointment. Nice writing, Hildegard. (laughs) This ointment is very precious because it quickly penetrates the skin of the sick person healing him. If the head of a vulture is cooked with the fat, as described, it is possible to have some juice of the brain, but not any other way. So that's the only viable way to get the brain juices, is making it into this sort of salve thing. Divide a vulture's heart in two so that it can be dried more easily. Dry it gently over the fire so that it does not burn, and then also dry it in the sun. Then sew it in a deer hide belt and gird yourself with it. If anyone wishes to kill you with poison while you are girded with this belt, you will soon sweat and your whole body will tremble. You will know that poison is nearby and you will be able to avoid it. That's not even like having drunk it. It's just if you're in the vicinity of poison, you'll sweat and start shaking. That seems, I mean, useful, but inconvenient. Absolutely. Since the vulture harms poison, every injury flees from it. The vulture naturally knows the times of winds and the season's winds and avoids killing itself while flying. Whence its heart is placed on a fire so that the humors in it might be dried up. 
It is placed in the sun so that its firmness might be strengthened by the heat of the sun. It is placed in the deer hide belt because the deer is quicker and more sensible than other animals. When cinched around a person as described, when his body is warmed by it, it makes him avoid the dangers of the poison. The air around the person dispels the approaching noxious air sent forth by treachery with the strength of the heart in the deer hide belt because that same air is around those things. I like the idea that treachery creates noxious air. I think it means, like, by demon treachery, but I like that idea. It's like, the bad vibes are very real and can be staved off by vulture heart. Yeah, it's a bad vibe detector. Nice. I'm here for it. Sensing that poison is present, the air alarms the person with trepidation. It's a bad vibe detector. Yeah. Just as places and people are led into holiness and prosperity from their good deeds, so are they turned toward traps and injury from their bad deeds. I appreciate how granular the description of how the belt works Yeah, is. it's a, like a step-by-step understanding of this. But when the vulture is cooked, fix its eye on a ring. If you wear it on your finger, it will check paralysis and gout. The lungs and feathers of the vulture are not useful for medicine. Good to know. That's um, quite a fashion statement, a vulture eye ring. Yeah. One of the most interesting things about this text to me is picturing Hildegard doing these things. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Like, what did her quarters look like? Yeah. Like, you pop into the kitchen where she works, and it's just, like, there's a dead vulture over here. There's a deer, like, strung up on the wall. She's got bottles and bottles of bodily parts and fluids and salves all over the place. Like, no wonder these people thought she was a witch. Well, not her specifically, but anyone who did this sort of thing. Yeah, it's very witchy. It's incredibly witchy. It's very, very strange. To us, especially. I'm just imagining them coming in to her, like, cracking open a vulture's ribcage and to get the heart and the girl. Uh, what you doing there, Hildegard? I'm making a bad vibe detector. <laughs> I love Hildegard. And then, and then tack this onto the fact that she was incredibly educated. She, you know, knew her stars. She knew her signs. She did music. She was an incredible visionary for her time. Like, this woman was amazing. And she was also completely willing to get, you know, up to her arms covered in blood. Yeah, we have to assume that she tried some of this herself. Yeah, absolutely. Like, what a bad Indeed. I think we forget a lot of that when we read texts like this, that these people were extraordinarily comfortable messing with this stuff. And additionally, especially for a woman, women would largely be doing these sort of tasks it wasn't like oh the men are gonna butcher this animal and then the women prepare it it's like no 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 no. the guy brings home you know or the son even brings home the rabbits that he caught and now the mother the wife is going to butcher them and cook them there's gonna be blood everywhere she's gonna be very very good at it yeah yeah i guess especially in a nunnery where like Men don't live there. They just come by to, like, trade and Mm -hmm. stuff. So, obviously, all of the butchery would be done in-house because that's where the kitchen is. Exactly. And that's where all the medicine is done. All of this stuff. It's wild to me. Absolutely wild to me. And really cool. I'm imagining a nun in, like, full habit butchering a deer. Right? I want to see a new piece of iconography for Hildegard that is just her arm deep in a vulture skull in one hand and you know she's like holding a bottle of something in the other hand and she's got like the holy halo over her head and she's wearing a cross and it's just like 
I'm Hildegard. <laughs> I'm a saint. <laughs> I revolutionized Christian music. What a wild woman. Yeah. She's so cool. Anyway, I think that's it for, for this one. Yeah, I feel like that's a good place to stop. All right. <laughs> shorter, shorter one this week, but good always to get back into the guest of Roman Orm for a little while. And it gives me more time to prepare our next text, which is going to be one of the sagas. Mm-hmm. I think my, it's my second favorite saga after Gretir's saga, I think. I'm excited about it. <laughs> Very excited about it. Good. Good. But yes, tune in next time for Aix Saga, for the ride of a lifetime trying to understand Icelandic family trees. Oh, that's right. That's how they all start. Yep. yep. We switch protagonists like six times. It's great. But anyway, that's next time. <laughs> yep. That is next time. All right. Thank you for listening to the Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, you can check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, for more medieval and geeky-related discussions. And feel free to reach out. We are always excited to listen to you guys and hear what you have to say. We're on Twitter at Maniculum, and we're on Instagram at Maniculum Podcast. Special thanks to Sandra Boyle for creating our music. You can check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. Alrighty. Welcome, welcome. Welcome back. <laughs> to a new, a, a new bleh. Off to a great start. Welcome back to a new episode of the Maniculum Podcast. Uh, for those of us, for the, wow. I'm just gonna, we're just gonna restart the whole thing here and now. We are 30 seconds in. Anyway. <laughs>